Well, praise the Lord. Good morning. Let us uh, continue our study in the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. Uh, Sean uh, started us in chapter 3, week before last, and we'll continue in chapter 3 this morning. I trust we can finish the chapter next time. We should, Lord willing, uh, get Sean, it depends on how you slice it, but you finished around verse 6 or 7, and we'll go, Lord willing, to verse 12 this morning. We'll read the whole chapter again. It's always good to read the scriptures and get it fresh in our minds. Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, if uh, Paul found the riches of the gospel unsearchable, how much more is it uh, beyond our full grasp of it? And yet, Lord, uh, you've given us so much. We're thankful. Desire to feed on thy word this morning. 
Be with our hearts and minds to that end, that we might know and do the truth. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, when Sean was uh, preaching, he pointed out and brought forth from the scriptures uh, several things for us. One of them was the, uh, the use of the word mystery, twice appearing in this um, passage um, that he preached from. Verse 3, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. Uh, verse 4, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Uh, verse 9, to make all men see, right, we'll be in verse 9 as well. What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the word, world sorry, hath been hid in God? And I think he focused primarily on the mystery as it was, right? Um, in the Bible, a mystery is something that was hidden and is now revealed to the church by the Holy Spirit. It was um, hidden in the scriptures, in the, what we call the Old Testament, uh, it was there, but hidden. It was in code, if you will, or requiring the, the language and the context of people's lives and minds was such that the meaning was veiled, and it's now revealed by the apostles and prophets. And um, the mystery that uh, um, Paul primarily has in view here is that the Gentiles were to be part of the commonwealth of Israel. That it wasn't only the Jewish nation. But that all the world was to partake of the kingdom of Messiah. Uh, the Jews, um, who were the covenant people of God, uh, through the covenant that God made with them through Moses, and made them the custodians of the Word of God, the Scriptures. <clears throat> and uh, they were the uh, blood descendants of Abraham. They had the physical sign of circumcision in the males. And so they rightly considered themselves the people of God. And as human beings tend to be in pride, would just think, you know, it's us. It's all about us. Gentiles are all going to hell. They're either going to convert or be damned. That would be their, their um, mind. They had, uh, the, the land of Israel was holy. And uh, historians tell us that uh, your pious Jew, uh, returning from the Gentile nations, as he stepped at the border of the land of Israel, would take off his shoes and step barefoot onto the holy land and knock all the dust from the heathen world off of his feet so that he didn't defile the holy land of Israel with the filthy uh, dirt of the Gentile nations. This was the mind of the, the Jews, right? When, even while under Roman occupation, a centurion asked the Lord for something, the Jews said, he's worthy. <laughs> he's a worthy Gentile. The rest of them can go to hell, but he is worthy because he's built us a synagogue. You see. Um, this was their mind. And the, uh, the mystery that was revealed was that the Gentiles were intended by God to be just as much children of God. Not second-rate citizens as they were in the temple. And there are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. None at all. Do you have any second-rate children? Brother? 
I mean, some only have one. Imagine having two or more. Okay, you're really a first-rate child, son or daughter, and you're just second-rate. Is there any parent like that that isn't deranged? God doesn't have second-rate children. This was the mystery. The Gentiles, they had their special second-rate seating in the temple. They had a wall of partition. And uh, it was a mystery. It was hidden. The, the, the nation of Israel was going to be the head and not the tail. And Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Messiah the king, right? Uh, David had established the kingdom and Solomon's kingdom. All oh, the glory days. And now Messiah, the son of David, is going to come. And this is the time that was prophesied by Daniel. And Messiah is going to appear and just subdue not only the Romans, but all nations. And we're going to be part of his kingdom. James and John wanting to sit right and left hand. And we're going to be the head of all the nations. This is what even the apostles were thinking right up till the crucifixion. And this is the the mystery is that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. Well, thank you for that. Sean um, didn't get into the other mysteries because they're not really what's in focus in the text. The mystery of iniquity. The mystery of, you know, we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll look at those passages when we're there. So we, we were um, reminded of this or pointed out to us that it's the mystery of uh, the fact that the Gentiles can be saved as well and made fellow heirs and partakers. And that this was not known. We take it for granted. In fact, it's tipped upside down. Most Gentiles kind of, oh, you're a Jew, you know, you can come to church too, kind of thing. And here's a ham sandwich. And we've got it so backwards. We have been grafted in to this uh, Jewish religion. Uh, and we've been brought up, right? Remember the Syrophoenician woman considered herself like a dog. She accepted that and was just looking for crumbs from the table. And Paul reminds the Gentiles, look, don't get too high and mighty, uh, you've got a lot of unlearning, your pagan things, to do. So he's made both one, removed the middle wall of partition. This was hidden, and now it's been revealed. And Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So this was the, uh, the mystery. Uh, Sean brought out dispensation, right? A stewardship, a management. Um, the gospel age, it's the last dispensation. There was the... Um, the age of the law, that was a dispensation, the Mosaic age. Uh, you could subdivide them depending on how thinly you like to slice things under the kingdoms, right? But um, this is the last dispensation. Uh, that's why the apostle says, little children, it is the last time. He didn't say the end is near. <laughs> So it's the last time. There were previous times. There was a time before the flood. There was a time before the law. There was a time of the law. There was a time of the Davidic kingdom. Said so this is the last time, the age of the church. <clears throat> so uh, this is the dispensation. And within that, uh, in the apostolic age, the Stewardship of the gospel to the Jews was given to Peter and James and others. And the stewardship of the gospel to the Gentile world um, to bring them both together, one fold and one shepherd, as the Lord spoke, that uh, dispensation was given to Paul. And uh, he wrote about it a little bit in uh, chapter 1. 
and uh, that by revelation this mystery was made known unto him. wasn't formally made known to the sons of men. Um, this mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. I think in Colossians he points out the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we can look more in that at that time when we're in the book of Colossians. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And uh, Sean was reminding us or pointing out from the scripture that all the riches of God are yours as the children of God. Um, I think that is essentially where he left off. All that God has has been given uh, to his people. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Paul saying, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And what I'd like us to do this morning is uh, go through verse by verse. I, I thought about that, um, that phrase in, in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's a sermon just on its own, but uh, I think we'll touch on it uh, briefly on all of these. Paul is made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Paul was made a minister not of his own ability and not by men but by the grace of God. And that's how it's to be for all of us. And he writes that elsewhere we've been looking um, on the assembly, and we touched a bit on spiritual gifts and the body. Uh, Let's <clears throat> look um, in, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 15. Get there. Yeah. Verse, uh, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Look, um, look in his first epistle to Timothy. Oh, well. Where he writes uh, a little about this, idea, this theme as well. <clears throat> first Timothy 1. We'll break in according to the glorious gospel, sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, 
and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. It's interesting, uh, the development will we'll maybe, no, we'll, we'll keep on track and we'll get to them in sequence. Paul is made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Uh, and he acknowledges that. It wasn't because he was clever, learned, uh, trained as a rabbi, a Pharisaic rabbi, rabbi and Pharisee, brought up at the school at the feet of Gamaliel the most elite theological teacher in his day. That had nothing to do with it. Peter, his counterpart, was an uneducated fisherman. And so God sends the uneducated fisherman to the educated Jewish clergy. He's really interested in helping us free of our pride, wasn't he? And he sends a Jew, Jewish rabbi, to the Heathen philosophers. Of course, the heathen philosophers look down on, on Jewish religion. That no flesh might glory in his presence. Paul acknowledges that his apostleship was by grace. And he gives us a clue as to how this um, process develops and works. Uh, <clears throat> in First uh, Timothy, he says... He enabled me, he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Can we trace, can we just stop and reflect a minute and think about some of these things? All right? Let's look at Paul's starting point. He started as a persecutor, uh, persecuting the church, blind to Christianity. He, he was so um, blind that not only didn't he get it, he wanted to stamp it out. That was Paul's starting point. Then he had a uh, a very, very unique conversion process, I call it, a process, or stage. The first was that he had an appearance of the resurrected Christ from heaven, blinding him. Now Paul indicates that he was the last person to see Christ resurrected from the dead, which calls into question every subsequent claim. To have seen Jesus. In my mind. He said last of all. He was seen of me also. Something to bear in mind. When we read about fantastic testimonies. But he saw the Lord. Speak to him from heaven. And he heard a voice. And uh, he was. um, uh, Struck blind. And he gave himself. To fasting and prayer. And while he was praying and fasting, he, God gave him a vision that a man named Ananias would come in and lay his hands on him and he would receive the Holy Spirit. And that would indicate to me that he had not yet received the Holy Spirit, which would indicate to my mind that he wasn't yet born again. He had had a supernatural experience as prophets had before him, but he hadn't been born into the kingdom. <clears throat> Keep that in mind as we read the scriptures just generally. What is new birth? And miracles of themselves do not indicate new birth. 
<clears throat> but that was his start. And then he, now he mightily confounded the Jews, right? He, he um, showing and proving that this was very Christ. But it does not indicate that any of them were converted. But rather that they got angry and wanted to kill him. We don't read of anybody being converted by the ministry of Paul when he was first saved. Some assume that, of course, they were. Scripture doesn't uh, mention it. I can't, I mean, I can't, how, how do you dispute that? Um, but I do, I'm inclined to think that there's a reason for that. And that is because he wasn't effective in converting people. Um, he was illuminated in his understanding. The scriptures were unveiled to him. He saw Christ. And with all of the skill of his rabbinical training, with this new revelation, he completely confounded them, beating them all in their various theological arguments and inspiring their hatred of him. And he was, um, he fled there. He was let down over the wall in a basket. He goes to Jerusalem. Everybody was afraid of him. Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. He had fellowship there. There was more agitation and persecution. And they shipped him off to Tarsus. And we meet him years later when uh, Barnabas takes him, uh, goes to Tarsus to get him and takes him to Antioch. And years later we meet him in Antioch as the least of the teachers in the church of Antioch. Years after his supernatural experience and vision and conversion. And uh, his... um, Shaming, if you will, and, and upsetting all of these theological experts. We find him years later just living as one of the ministers, and in fact the least of them, in the church at Antioch. That's a trajectory. And <clears throat> after they were fasting and praying, Barnas, Barnabas, being the chief of the prophets, And Saul being the least of the teachers in that list that was uh, given there in Acts. Um, That is a common thing in in Scripture. We have to discern. Sometimes the list of names is um, chronological significance. Eldest first. Sometimes it's primary first. And you'll see that in uh, in Scriptures in the Old Testament um, names. And that explains why sometimes the same list, the order is changed. And that's why it's listed like that. You see it in the naming of the apostles. You never see Simon Peter coming at the bottom of the list of the apostles. They're the, the three and four most intimate apostles are always in the top of the list. They're the chief of the apostles. Paul refers to the chief of the apostles. So when we read that list in, um, in Acts, I believe it's chapter 13, the scriptures are teaching us something. By the way, if we'll pay attention, in the trajectory of the life of Paul, is that although he had this supernatural experience, and although he was, um, the Holy Spirit was given to him, not just through preaching, which is how people are normally to receive the Spirit when they believe, but through a vision and a brother coming to lay hands on him in private and so on. 
We don't read that he spoke with tongues or prophesied. It was pretty lackluster compared to what Peter experienced with the sound of a rushing mighty wind and cloven tongues of fire and stood up and preached and 3,000 are saved. All that happened for Paul was ice. Eyes were open. Scales fell off of them. And he began a humble Christian life in obscurity. And years later we find him the least of the ministers in the church. And he became not a whit, not a hair behind the very chiefest apostle. By the grace of God working in him. And him being utterly faithful at each stage. That's the way forward. And this is the thing I want to focus on, brethren. For this this verse here. um, The Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul. Notice again the order. Barnabas and Saul for the work we're to have called them. And on that mission, God, who distributes the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will, decided on that mission that now was the time to take Paul, Saul, from being Barnabas' protege or student or, you know, mentee, Barnabas being the mentor, and make Paul Barnabas' leader. Because now you see he was the chief speaker. Started out as Barnabas' understudy on the mission trip. And God made him the chief speaker. And it appears that the bust up with Barnabas and Saul was because Barnabas couldn't handle that. Um, That's what all the evidence points to. We can discuss that another time if you want. Why I would think that. It seems fairly obvious to me. And I will take this warning, brethren. Do you have the grace for God to make someone who he used you to disciple your teacher? It takes humility to recognize God's ordering, doesn't it? And unfortunately, most people are too proud to accept that. But let's learn from that. That's not really our point. That's just by the way. The point being that Paul became what he was by the grace of God. And his part to play was being faithful every day with what he had from God and where he was at. He didn't quantum leap into apostleship. He was faithful in the little things every day. And over the course of years, God made him from a babe in Christ. To an apostle. By grace. What that should do to you and me. Who consider ourselves. Rightly so. Very ordinary. Is inspire us to be faithful. With the little that God has given us. That's what it should do. We should not look at them. Well pot was Paul. What am I going to do? Lest we run peril of being like that man. Who buried his pound in the napkin or in the dirt. Right? By the grace of God, I am what I am. This is what he said. Let's um, look at this in in Romans. Please consider these things at your your leisure. Uh, Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye, that's plural, all of us, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 3, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, 
Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Pride goes in two directions. I'm useless, that's pride. I'm the greatest, that's pride. (laughs) And Paul is trying to uh, get us on track. Uh, Not to think more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly according, follow this brethren, as God hath dealt to a few important brothers the measure of faith. Is that what your Bible says? To everyone. Everyone. This is a a passage on the body, on gifts, on ministry. We're not going to get into it. But the fact is God has given a measure of faith to every believer. We being many are one body in Christ. Look, verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Peter would say, as every man hath received the gift, so let him minister. I've been, I mean, I was thinking again this morning. Never mind asking, I'm talking about myself. Before I get too, or while, let's put it that way, while I ask the Lord for more, how about I just focus on being thoroughly faithful with what he has given me? Uh, That's not a reproof to anyone here, by the way. I'm I'm talking about my own thoughts. I can see, as I judge my life, where I need to be faithful. How about I focus on that and trust God to um, bring things forward? Uh, Too easy for me to ask for more than what I have now while I'm not being um, perfectly faithful in what I do have already. So there's a way forward. But note this, brethren, brethren, God has given you grace. God has given you gifts. And those, that grace, that gift is not only to benefit your own soul, but others. And rejoice in that. Love the Lord every day. You don't read anywhere in Scripture that believers need to struggle and worry about what their gifts are. Just love the Lord and serve him. Present yourself to him and he'll bring them forth. You just get on with doing the will of God. That's the thing. You're fine. If I can put it that way. Let's not get distracted. Just focus on Christ. He'll bring forth what he wants to come forth from you. When he wants. As long as you and I are walking in love. Walking in faith. Loving the Lord and being faithful. Just Walk with him. Uh, you know, what your gift is. You know, people wonder, brother, sister, you have too many gifts in you to count. What makes you think you only have one and you're trying to figure out which one it is? You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has unsearchable riches. Let's not get distracted on those things. All right? Let us focus on loving the Lord and being faithful because he brings them forth by grace. This is what, um, what Paul's writing to the Ephesians. I am made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. It's his power. It doesn't matter if you and I are shy people or confident or, or, or eloquent or stammering. 
God ministers the Holy Spirit through you in power, not natural human ability. And so the, the key for us is to be in communion with him. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles. Uh, look at how Paul starts, right? His, as a younger man, in his earlier epistle to the Corinthians, uh, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles. <laughs> Eight years later, in writing to the Ephesians, unto me who am less than the least of all saints. <laughs> and uh, perhaps nearing the end, he writes to Timothy as he ages still. <laughs> I thank Christ Jesus, right? This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And in his thinking, Paul progressed from being conscious that he was the least of the apostles to being less than the least of all saints, to being the chief of sinners, <laughs> as he matured in his consciousness. Something to consider. Uh, so many of us wanting to, you know, rise. <laughs> Paul was racing to the bottom. Uh, we thought, wow, what a display of humility, less than the least of all saints. But uh, he began to consider, as he remembered, he wasn't currently the chief of sinners. I hope we don't think that, like a Romans 7 position. That wasn't his current experience. But the thing that he was conscious of in writing to the Corinthians you know, wow, I'm not even fit to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And while he's writing to the Ephesians, he's so conscious, wow, I'm not even fit to be a Christian. He's just counted it all such a privilege. Now, nearing the end, he's writing to Timothy. saying, wow, I'm like the worst sinner on earth and Christ loved me and made me a saint. It's not that he was sinning worse than anybody else. Come on, let's be real. Look at his life. He would, that'd be a contradiction. It's what he was conscious as he was increasingly aware of how much grace God had bestowed. How gracious, how unworthy, past even describing. Less than the least of all saints. It would be wonderful. This is what he means, counting one another um, better than themselves. It's, it's not like, you know, uh, a group of piano students, right? We can all imagine. I don't know how musical everybody is. Uh, um, but imagine a group of piano students, let's say a dozen, and you've got, you know, this master piano player teaching them all. In a normal situation, you will have, you know, in a group that size, it's common. You have one really amazing student. And so on. And then one that's plunking along, just, you know, ba ba black sheep, plunk, 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 you know, and, and in between. It's a normal situation. And people read that passage and, you know, they're trying to be humble. And so you've got the top piano playing saying, well, I'm just so useless, you know, little ba ba black sheep over here is way better than me, you know. It's ridiculous, right? That's, 
I mean, we're, we're trying to do mental gymnastics to believe something that's not true, trying to be humble. That's not what the apostle is saying at all. He's saying, <laughs> you know, esteem others better than yourself. Consider others more worthy of honor, more worthy of, of grace, more worthy of preference, more worthy. Give place to them. It's not about comparing how spiritual you are and always thinking everybody's more spiritual than you. Paul didn't do that. He says, I'm spiritual, you're carnal, when he's writing to the Corinthians. It's just facts. It's like a tall person saying, I'm tall, you're short. It's not a put down, it's not prideful. We're just, you know, I'll get that for you off the shelf because I'm tall and you are not. It's just, it's got nothing to do with that. It's, brother, you sit here and I'll sit down here. Because I just think of how precious you are to God and how privileged I am to serve you. That's the attitude he's talking about. And we can all do that in truth. We're not conscious of who's more gifted or not. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got everything to do with valuing your brother and sister the way God values them. That's the thing. And so we're not thinking about ourselves at all. We're just thinking about what a treasure this person is to the Father. And how much I want to be treasuring and honoring. And that's how we should treat one another. And this is what Paul is saying. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. He's not thinking I'm less spiritual than everybody. Less gifted than everybody. He writes to the Romans. I want to see you so that I can come and impart to you some spiritual gift. He wasn't full of himself. He was there coming like the, like this, the servant in the king's palace. We went to see the, the king but he wasn't home. Well, on our trip there, you know, he stopped in and he wasn't home. I should have told him we were coming. Uh, and then in Scotland, we went to his summer home. He wasn't there either, just like, you know, that's twice I'm losing patience with you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> kidding aside, um, the, the, uh, the servant in the king's, um, king's uh, palace, running around attending to all of the princes and princesses, that's how we should see ourselves in the church, as that servant running around ministering to all the princes and princesses, in the, all the kings and priests that were privileged to serve. And as we do that mutually, it's just a glorious atmosphere. There's no jostling and competing in pride and, and all of those awful things that exist in the world's kingdom. Me, less than the least of all saints... That I should preach among the Gentiles. We've heard about that. Gentiles are included. Paul's uh, been given a dispensation, a, a stewardship, a management of administering the gospel to the Gentiles. I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable does not mean undiscoverable. We just can't figure any of it out. <laughs> like how would you preach something that you have no clue about right? sorry I, I don't I'm not addressing you with that I'm just reasoning you know to, to that he's meaning that the riches of Christ are so vast they cannot be measured like the sand of the sea innumerable just imagine being given the task for the day or for the rest of your life go and count every grain of sand on the beach I mean even Port Burwell right and with no disrespect to us, or, or, or that is not a world-class beach, right? This is kind of muddy and grungy and so on often, right? Um, and it's not very long. But 
go and try and count each grain of sand on that little beach. It's just not impossible, is it? You're not going to live long enough to count them one by one, all day, every day, for the rest of your life. You wouldn't get it done. Not one little beach. This is what Paul is saying. The riches, the, this, the scope of it, the breadth, it's unsearchable, it's immeasurable, it's inexhaustible. Not that we haven't the foggiest clue what they are. We do, and we want to look at some of those things. The riches of Christ. I think um, easiest passage to look at, to, to jumpstart us there, is uh, Revelation chapter 3. And he's writing to the Laodicean church. Verse 14, unto the church, excuse me, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's their state, lukewarm. This is the cause of their state. Because thou sayest, I am rich. Material riches breed lukewarmness. Let us beware, brethren. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. Let's look at a few of those. Riches, gold. Well, we know it's not physical gold. Peter writes that, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot. Right? <clears throat> so we know he's not talking about material gold. Let's look in First Peter chapter 1. He's writing to those who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season if need be ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise. Spiritual gold is faith. Or faith is spiritual gold. And we can be very rich. In fact, God has counted the poor of this world rich in faith. Now, not every poor person. You don't get... To be rich in faith just because you're poor. That's not what he's saying. But it's the poor that are most prone to respond to the gospel. And to believe God. And to trust in God. They need him for everything. They seek him for everything. They trust him for everything. And find him in everything. Those that are so. Whereas for the rich man. It's, it's a greater miracle. And it's a long slow process. As he becomes less and less self-reliant. More and more aware of his powerlessness. And the, the unreliableness of his riches. It's a longer process. But faith, 
face gold. It's part of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Faith opens up to you and me all of the reservoir and resources of God. And you and I are to be rich in faith. This is what the Lord's writing to the Laod- or speaking to the Laodiceans. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. What's the currency? Anyone want to uh, consider? It's there later in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 15, see then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. It's time is your currency. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend, your, spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisf- satisfieth not? Come and spend time with God. Come and soak in his word. Come and worship. Come and pray. Come and buy gold. Come and buy faith. Come buy gold by spending time in the word of God and in prayer and communion with him. And then watch him purify it through the fires that he brings through your life. That you might be rich in faith. Hallelujah. (laughs) The unsearchable riches of Christ. Faith is one. Faith is the gold. Love is greater than gold. Don't know what we'd call it. (laughs) The greatest of faith, hope, and charity, the greatest is charity. There is an inexhaustible supply of love for you and for me. There is no circumstance, no person in your life too troublesome that God can't fill your heart with love for them. Not the grit, you know, people. <laughs> You've got to get beyond that. Some people's problem is not that they're too loving, and not that they lack love, it's that they're too loving. They have too much natural, and they depend on it. And it's only in the extreme situations where they realize, oh man, this guy, Lord, give me more love. <laughs> You've just got to die and let Jesus live. He can love them easy. <laughs> you, you and I have to come to a complete end of the idea That we can be like Jesus. Only Jesus can be like Jesus. That's why we're baptized into his death. That he might live. Paul said this. I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me. Do you think brethren that Paul was naturally a loving man at all? (laughs) Just I mean. Even the natural personality that shines through in his epistles. You can imagine this man without the Spirit of God must have been a beast, right? Just abrasive like you wouldn't believe. He had a big heart of love. It wasn't his, it was Christ's. Riches. 
unsearchable riches. Paul's discovered this. The 1 Corinthians 13, Paul had to learn it. I guess he learned it day in and day out in the church at Antioch. He became a teacher and get along with, uh, with all of his uh, fellow believers in the rough and tumble of life, cast together, you know. There's a saying, good, um, good fences make good neighbors. A safe distance, make sure you don't get into fights, you know. Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he weary of thee and hate thee. Well, that was out the window. The Christians were cast in on top of each other, beside each other, rubbing along every day. And this is a great experience to learn how short-lived your lovey-doveyness is and uh, get rid of all of that. And now this reservoir of the love of Christ flowing out. Riches. These are some of the, the riches. Um, you know, now, what use is gold to you if you're shivering because you lack clothing? Right? So part of the riches is to be well clothed. Um, white raiment. That thou mayest be clothed. The shame of thy nakedness do not appear. In the same book, you know, um, the new Jerusalem. Adorned as, a, as a, a bride adorned for her husband. White linen. Right? Elsewhere in Revelation, the white linen is the righteousness of saints. Rich in righteousness. Doing what is good and right in the sight of God in every circumstance of life, in business, in purchasing. I say we have this, you know, and I get it. I'm not wanting to condemn anybody, but I hope I can uh, have the same grace. We like to um, buy things secondhand, right? It's again spread the, the, the um, funds better that way. Uh, <clears throat> we're not wealthy materially by Canadian standards, although we all live like kings compared to global standards. So buy things. And I, I have this discussion sometimes with one or another. Now we want a good deal, but a good deal is only good if it's good for both the person selling to us and for us buying. And a good deal is only good if the person buying from us is getting a good deal. Right? A good deal is good for everybody. It's not just me. Righteousness. Um, those rare occasions, write them down on the calendar. Those rare occasions I take my wife out to a restaurant. It's not just because I'm cheap. It's because I really struggle about the faithful use of the Lord's money. Spending it on a place where we're paying way more, you know. Like a week's groceries or something. But anyway... I mean, she deserves to be taken there three times a day, but, you know, she's married to El Chipo here. Um, make sure you give a good tip and a gospel tract. Don't give a gospel tract and a cheap tip and a grouchy response, right? Generous. <clears throat> We're not showing off. We're being generous. We, we just want to bless the person. And the waiters and waitresses are trying to get... You know, life's expensive, right? going through university or whatever. Um, most people, when they're six, don't think, I want to be a waiter when I grow up, right? It's, it's kind of a compromise. I need to make money, and I think I can do all right here if I hustle and I'm friendly and this and that. And it, it's, it's very encouraging, you know. 
Now, some of them might have bad attitudes, but what is that to us? Have you ever had a bad attitude? And God blessed you anyway. Made his sun to shine on you. Be generous. Um, righteousness. Righteousness in everything. Righteousness in our employer. I, I don't think we need to say these things here. But brother and sister, if during the hours at work where you are supposed to be working for someone by the hour and you are checking social media on your cell phone, you are a thief. You are stealing from your employer. He's paying you however much by the hour. He's not paying you to check your WhatsApp messages or something on Facebook. Like that's not your time. You have contracted with your employer to give him your services for whatever the rate you've agreed upon by the hour. And now you are stealing some of that time from him. I'm not, I trust I'm not speaking to anyone here. To go and fiddle on this thing. That's unrighteousness. That's stealing. And let it not be once named among us. Now if you're on salary, it's just up to you. Get the job done. And you want to check the news in the middle of the day and work in the middle of the night. That's on you. I've done that. And not the smartest deal, but... You know, I haven't defrauded anybody. All right? So that's not, I'm, I'm not one to cast condemnation, but if you're being paid by the hour, a t-shirt, boss is coming, look busy, right? Righteousness, right? Rich in righteousness. Think of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus taking an extended washroom break to poke around on his cell phone? While someone's paying by the hour. Unrighteous. Anyway, I I don't. But you know, um, you might exhort. If you know somebody that does that, you might exhort them. Uh, I'm looking here. Most of us are self-employed and so on. I don't think that that would really hit any of us here. But righteousness. Riches in righteousness. How about this one? Um, An eye salve that thou mayest see. Anoint thine eyes with thy salve. So, not, uh, of course, there's a reference to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it gives us insight into understanding the scriptures. And remember, our currency is time. Time spent with God. And he fills our hearts with faith. And he ministers righteousness of disposition to our souls. And it's manifest in action as we Go from our place of prayer to the world's activities. Nian gives us insight and understanding into himself, his ways, his word. But pause for a moment on the, um, the apothecary's art, right? That's where we get anointments, ointments from and anointing oil and so on. Um, I may have... In 1 Corinthians, Paul was, uh, makes reference to the uh, art of the apothecary. Uh, yeah. hmm. No, I've lost it uh, there. We are made a sweet uh, savor, God unto Christ. 
of Christ unto God, I beg your pardon. Yeah, I'll just have to quote it so we don't take up our, our time. Uh, <clears throat> we're made a sweet savor of Christ unto God in them that are saved and in them that are lost, right? Sweet savor. Smell. You, know, you get some of these, uh, these ancient um, apothecaries in the Middle Eastern markets. And the story's told, you know, you ever been to a bazaar or a market and some of them, they, they'll call out. Right? Trying to attract attention. I don't know if you've ever been to that kind of market. It's not part of our culture, but, you know, over here, whatever they're selling. I remember being at a farmer's market in Mississauga and one fellow, you know, calling out asparagus, you know, and the price and all that. It's very common in Middle Eastern markets, certainly in former days, but uh, many markets, uh, depending on the culture, and they're calling out um, this and that advertising. And the story is told of an apothecary with a really, really fine perfume. And he just sat there silently, got to his stall, and he put out a bottle and he took the cap off. And eventually, somebody would come and find his stall and buy some. Someone else. He left, he sold everything he had. Because the smell just advertised itself. People followed their nose. <laughs> he didn't have to say a word. This is a Christian spends time in fellowship with God. And the nature of Christ increasingly perfumes their whole being, their personality, their conduct, their manner, their affection, the, the twinkle in their eye. And they, uh, it's a sweet savor. I think I quoted it now. Um, probably left out one or two pieces, but uh, we got it. I knew it was in Corinthians. Yeah. Yes. Thanks be to God, which also causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. In them that are saved and in them that perish. Remember that woman with the alabaster box of spikenard? Very costly. How much was it worth? Who remembers? The woman broke it and poured it on the Lord. <laughs> 300, 300 pence, a penny a day. For a minimum wage job, a year's wage. In our economy, what's that, $15 an hour? Let's just pare it down, 100 bucks a day for 300 days. $30,000 bottle of ointment. Rich. And she just poured it on the Lord's head. Now, if you are a billionaire, you can afford that kind of stuff. You're rich. You can smell glorious. You can dress yourself really well. You've got riches. But the riches of Christ. What is it that the Apostle Peter wrote to the women? Who's adorning, let it not be that outward of plaiting the hair. And you know, women are glorious and they like to add to that with all of the fusses, right? And Peter says, don't let that be your preoccupation, but be clothed with Christ. The inward riches, the spiritual riches, they're outward, they're visible. Not to these eyes, but they're manifest. The beauty of Christ in the person's conduct, riches. 
the unsearchable riches of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't it so, brethren, that when we read about the kindness of the Lord, his wisdom, his graciousness, all of these attributes, they're yours. Paul preached them. He preached that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, righteousness. It's all part of the riches of Christ. He preached it, all available through the cross. Wisdom. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, <clears throat> chapter 2. Verse 4, my speech and preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Verse 6, howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which none of the princes of this world knew, and so on. Wisdom is part of the riches, Christ, understanding. Things above and things below. So, look at the time. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, let's, let's draw quickly to a close. Um, <clears throat> verse 9, again, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Um, Paul's widening up his use of the word mystery here, and he's talking now about the, uh, the church, the, the gospel, a people indwelt by God. Make all men see what's the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. It was not known throughout the era of the prophets, the law, Moses, Melchizedek, Enoch. God was outside. People could walk with God. People, God was always you know, coming closer and closer to God. It was not revealed that it would be Christ in you. That God would dwell not just in the room, or in the city, or in the camp, but in you. That mystery. That's the one he's talking about. All men see the fellowship of the mystery. Beyond now, he's included the Gentiles, and it's this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, as he writes in that language elsewhere. And this was done from the beginning of the world, right? God who created all things by Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and that was created through Jesus Christ. We talked about what the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and the, the Father, the old Latin theologians, you know, Fons Divinatus, the divine fountain, this self-existing being called God, existing in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the invisible things of him being made known by the creation. The closest picture we have would be like the sun, which is an entity that radiates light and heat that is at once here and at the same time everywhere. It's a picture for us of how three can be one <clears throat> and that Jesus Christ is the creating agent and through that to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord and that's a mouthful but the point being that God had this intention when he made the creation 
And he said, when he got to that final point, he said, and now let us make man in our own image. But let's understand what was going on. So turn into Job for a moment, shall we? Book of Job here. We'll um, pass over much. (laughs) Uh, Won't distract ourselves or or turn aside rather to the the content or, or the context of Job. We're just looking at God speaking in chapter 38. And the Lord answered Job. Right? And we know what was going on there. We won't get into it. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? And he's using figurative language to describe the creation, right? Uh, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? He's talking about creating the earth or who laid the cornerstone thereof. He's using known human architectural terms as metaphor for how he created the physical universe and the world, the, the earth on which Job lived. Where were you, right? Verse, verse 4, where were you when I created the earth? When, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Do you understand? We, we get a small insight into the creation. But the angels were already there, made by God. And they watched God. God is, is revealing things, not only to us, but to the angels. And they're watching him create the earth. And, all of the, and they sing for joy. Wow, amazing. You ever seen something amazing? We, we see performers, opera singers. Well, <laughs> no, some of us would just, uh, I was, anyway, won't get on that. But musicians or artists or if you're into skiing or whatever, you know, and they, they can do these jumps and we watch these things. Or grand works of architecture. Seen, um, you know, I try and keep some sense of what's going on in the design world as a furniture designer myself so that I can be aware. And every now and again I'll see, you know, images of these grand uh, cathedrals of various sorts, the architecture. You just walk in it, and it's like, wow. Amazing, all the detail, the grandness of it, the detail of it, the intricacy of it, designed by one mind. Just one building. Amazing. And there you have these angels watching the greatest mind of all minds creating something, this grand cathedral. Vast universe. And then this one planet on it. And life. And plant life. And animal life. And all they they sang for joy. Wow, look at that. They wouldn't have said wow. The holy version of wow. All the angels. the, the, The sons of God. Which is another term for angels. The angelic beings. They sang for joy. Shouted for joy. Where were you? Here now, God is continuing that education and enlightening these created beings about the wisdom that exists. And that wisdom only exists in God. And through the church, through the, this man that he has made, and then the awful sin, and then the redemption, God is revealing, not only to men but to angels, his wisdom and nature in the plan of redemption for humanity. And they're watching it unfold. 
And they're peering over the, the scriptures. And over every believer to whom God has given revelation. through the, they're, they're being educated as they marvel at the unfolding of wisdom. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That it should be all of grace. That God can overcome evil. And all of the powers of that wicked devil at his hordes through weakness on the cross. And the sons of God are still shouting for joy as they marvel at the wisdom of God. And they are continually being educated as these things are worked out in the church. This was his intention, right? To make all men see the mystery and that the heavenly powers might be made aware. And the devils themselves, they are being made aware of just how wise God is. How formidable is the one whom they have decided to be adversarial with. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church. That's the mechanism of teaching. The manifold wisdom of God. Unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable. Brethren... Let's enjoy it. Take it in. It, it's, it's impossible. It's like going to drink up Georgian Bay or something. You know? We were there and swimming. It, we're just dots. I can't fully take in a grand cathedral. Like what? You could stand there. You can stare. At some point, you're going to move on and get on with your life. Just one grand to me, a worm, but puny in size to the earth and non-existent in size compared to the universe. To try and take in. All of the, I mean, we're looking at this thing. Martin, what are you looking at? In my mind's eye, I'm looking at what I remember of these, some of these grand cathedrals, the intricate ornament. And to be able to design just one of those, I couldn't do it in my entire lifetime, trying to work out all that detail. Some people are incredibly gifted by God. Now, they work hard. But to imagine that and to, to, to draw it all out, to envision it and to give direction to Hundreds and hundreds of workers, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of workers to put together this grand cathedral. And you and I could stand in one and just be in awe and wonder and leave and not have begun to really come anywhere close to appreciating it all. But we're still richer for the experience. Amen. And so it's even more than that as we're in the temple of God. Marveling, jewel upon jewel. Studying the, the, the life of Christ, considering the heart of God, the grace, and then the experiences of life, the interventions of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost, the answers to prayer. It's an endless, vast, more grand than any cathedral, more rich than any vault of human treasure is Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And though we can never begin to search it all out, let's at least try. <laughs> let's take in as much as we can. Let's drink as much of Georgian Bay up as we can. Let's try and remember and see as much detail and, uh, and be in awe of as much grandeur as our puny little human frames can take. Let's be greedy of the riches of Christ. Let's enjoy the, you know, you've ever stood on, a, on an ocean beach. I didn't know how privileged I was as a little boy. I was informed later it was a world-class beach. I went to it every week. 
in my growing up. People would travel from all around the world to go to a beach that was almost my home. Vast, you know, the white sands going everywhere, the ocean stretched forth, and there's this puny little boy in this vast thing, but I enjoyed it. My children would be like, oh, Dad, <laughs> I'd love that. Much more is Christ. And better to be that puny little boy in that vast ocean than home in a room with a video game, right? <laughs> so let's take as much of Christ as we can. This is part of God's eternal purpose, brethren. The church comprised of Gentile, added to Jew. The whole world, every kindred, tribe, nation, people, tongue. Out of all of that variety of humanity, each one formerly plunged in sin and an enemy of God, transformed by the eternal power of God through a man crucified in weakness on a cross. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That no bondage of sin or Satan or flesh can stop. And the wisdom of God, the riches of Christ, are known through the church. Hallelujah. And speaking of Christ, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. There's none of us kept out of this. We all have access to all of his riches, to the very throne of God. Boldness is not belligerence. It's confidence. Have confidence. Um, Esther was tenuous. The scepter was stretched forth. Her life was in the balance. The outcome was grace. We have more boldness than that. There's a sure way. The scepter has already been extended. The blood of Christ has been shed. And every penitent, believing sinner can be assured of direct access to the God of heaven. How much more his church, whom he hath redeemed and sealed with his Holy Spirit. We have boldness and access with confidence, not only to all of the unsearchable riches of Christ, but to Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father. How could we even begin to do justice to thy word and work? We cry out with the psalmist, so teach us to number our days. We may apply our hearts unto wisdom. It was prayed already earlier this morning to completely remove ourselves from every lesser thing, every unnecessary diversion of the world. And in every good thing that we are employed in, that is right and of thy will. May it all be immersed with the knowledge of God and the Spirit of Christ infusing our whole beings. Father, we desire to walk with thee, not in word only, Lord, but in the Holy Ghost and in reality and power. And so cause thy righteousness and praise to spring forth in us through thy word. The glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.